From Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. Hello and welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis and joining me on the panel this week are VOA White House Bureau Chief Patsy Whitaker-Zwara and VOA Congressional Correspondent Catherine Gibson. Welcome Patsy and Catherine. Well, here are the issues. President Joe Biden visited Florida to survey firsthand the damage caused by Hurricane Ian. The president and Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, put aside their political rivalry and their administrations have worked in concert since the hurricane's deadly collision with Florida's West Coast. Russian President Vladimir Putin signed a law to formalize Russia's annexation of four Ukrainian regions, a move widely condemned as illegal and one that comes as Ukrainian forces advance in a counteroffensive to take back areas under Russian control. Saudi Arabia and Russia, acting as leaders of the OPEC plus energy cartel, agreed to their first large production cut in more than two years in a bid to raise prices, countering efforts by the United States and Europe to choke off the enormous revenue that Moscow reaps from the sale of crude. Officials in Seoul, South Korea, said North Korea flew 12 warplanes near its border with the country, prompting the South to scramble 30 military planes in response. The highly unusual incident came hours after North Korea fired two ballistic missiles into the sea in its sixth round of missile tests in less than two weeks. In the most significant trial yet to emerge from the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol, prosecutors contended that leaders of the far-right Oath Keepers sought to end the country's history of peaceful transitions of presidential power in order to keep Donald Trump in office. The federal appeals court agreed to fast-track an appeal by the Department of Justice over the appointment of a special master to review thousands of pages of government records seized this summer from former President Donald Trump's Florida home. Well, those are the issues. Let's get started. Patsy, President Biden traveled to Florida to see firsthand the devastation left by Hurricane Ian. He also met with Governor DeSantis, who was considered a potential 2024 White House contender. So what can you tell us about Biden's visit? So this is a really interesting dynamic between the two leaders, Kim. As you know, but perhaps our audience may not know, that last month the governor sent dozens of migrants to Martha's Vineyard, this upscale island enclave in the liberal state of Massachusetts, to protest the increase in illegal immigration under the Biden administration. DeSantis was also allegedly having plans to send migrants to Biden's home state of Delaware, although he would not confirm this. So. Clearly, Biden and DeSantis have had political issues, political confrontations before, but the fact that both of them came together, they both praised each other in terms of the handling of the recovery post-Hurricane Ian, it really shows, according to observers, that both of these leaders understand that voters want to see leaders come together, taking action, especially during incidents such as a natural disaster like this. They both have a political interest to be seen as overcoming their partisan differences as they deal with the impacts of natural disaster, and that was exactly what happened this week. Also, in the wake of Hurricane Ian, a search and rescue team in Fort Myers Beach set out to knock on every door that was still standing. What is the latest regarding the search and rescue and just how people are recovering from this? 
So the impact of Hurricane Ian is expected to be very extreme and very long. You know, as we know so far, at least 110 people have died in Florida as well as in North Carolina. Most of those deaths occur in Florida. The Federal Emergency Management Agency Administrator Deanne Criswell said that uh, they have allowed up to 60 days in terms of 100% reimbursement for debris removal for the state. This is beyond what is the standard, which is 30 days. But since the storm is so catastrophic, they feel that 60 days, which was requested by DeSantis, makes sense. And as you know, this is the second time that the president has traveled to survey storm damage. He was also in Puerto Rico on Monday, getting an update on recovery efforts from Hurricane Fiona. So there's been a lot of storms going on in the United States, and this is certainly a time when the federal government want to be seen as helping the states in accordance to laws. Catherine, what is Capitol Hill saying about this? What type of impact will this have on the upcoming midterm elections? We always have the question up on Capitol Hill of how much emergency funding will be voted and passed to send to these states that have been impacted by the hurricanes. We know that all of the Florida Republicans voted against emergency aid to their own state. But when we really drill down on the details, that's not going to make a huge difference in terms of the wider political differences. People are still going to be looking towards their own party, that kind of partisan tribalism that we see in politics today. So I don't think you're going to see an immediate impact on the midterm elections because there's so many other economic and social issues at play in these elections. And a look at some world developments, Russian President Vladimir Putin signed a law to formalize Russia's annexation of four Ukrainian regions, a move that is widely condemned as illegal. How is this changing the direction of Russia's war on Ukraine and what is the U.S. response? So at this point, we just know that the U.S. response will continue to be supporting Ukraine in terms of weapons, in terms of aid, and in terms of pressuring Russia in all the different kinds of international forums out there. So this week, the administration has dropped another $625 million. This is for additional arms, munitions, equipment to pay the salaries of the Ukrainian soldiers. And this means that so far, the U.S. has provided total U.S. military assistance to Ukraine, more than $17.5 billion. And it seems like it's going to continue because there is bipartisan support for this war, which Catherine can speak more on. In terms of how the dynamics of the war is going to continue, there's this huge concern of whether or not Vladimir Putin will make good on his threat to use nuclear weapons if he's cornered to do so. And that's certainly something of a big concern for the administration as well as for NATO. That's right, and it's a huge concern up on Capitol Hill too. We were hearing in the last week or so since that annexation was looming that both Democratic and Republican senators have said that this is really an escalation of the Ukraine conflict and that they're really becoming very deeply concerned about the prospect of nuclear weapons being used, a lot of senators saying, you know, look, even if it's used on Ukraine, which is not yet a NATO member, the impact, the fallout from a nuclear weapon being used will have an impact on other NATO countries like Poland 
and that in their view, that would trigger a need for the Article 5 NATO self-defense and that the U.S. would have to come to their defense. So that is definitely a concern on Capitol Hill. You're also hearing a little bit of pushback in a bipartisan way against why the Biden administration has not yet designated Russia as a state sponsor of terror. A lot of senators telling reporters in the past week or so they feel that this will be a really important issue to push on and that they wonder why we're not getting more support from it from President Biden. Alternatively, you also do see that even though there is widespread support still for U.S. aid to Ukraine, you're starting to hear a little bit of grumbling from some House Republicans that the U.S. should not be spending this much money when there are so many economic concerns up here at home. So really, you know, a still strong bipartisan support on Capitol Hill, but a lot of disagreement and discussion about where we go forward in terms of supporting Ukraine in this conflict. How long will the U.S. be able to continue to provide this type of assistance? And are other countries doing the same? Of course, we have these midterm elections coming up in the United States, and we don't yet know if Republicans will retake control of the U.S. House of Representatives. If they indeed do, when in those elections in November, they would come into office next January. If Republicans have that majority, they're going to face disagreement from some wings of their party about spending more money in Ukraine. And you're going to have difficulty passing any kind of legislation, any kind of funding that sends more money in aid to Ukraine. So I think that's something that our international audience may think, you know, sometimes the midterm elections are a little domestically focused here in the United States, but this is an important one to keep an eye on in the near future. And in another new development, OPEC Plus Energy agreed to their first large production cut in more than two years in a bid to raise prices. How is the United States reacting to this? Very strongly, the White House sent out this really strong statement saying that President Biden was disappointed by this decision. They called it short-sighted. And White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre basically said that this shows that OPEC Plus is aligned with Russia. So this will surely become a huge problem for President Joe Biden, particularly ahead of the midterm elections when he was really counting on to make sure that the price of gas in the U.S. stays low. And this move by OPEC Plus, it's really designed to spur an increase in crude prices, which has fallen to $80 a barrel from more than $120 per barrel in June. The other things that the Biden administration is doing is that it's directing the Department of Energy to release another 10 million barrels from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve next month. And they're also hinting that there's going to be legislation coming out to reduce OPEC's control over energy prices. And this is something that Catherine will be able to speak more in terms of what's happening in Congress there. That's right. You already heard late Wednesday when this news was coming out a lot of reaction, particularly from Senate Democrats and House Democrats who are very frustrated at the timing of this, of course, because you have a lot of concerns domestically about gas prices. This is weighing heavily on the minds of American voters. And as Patsy mentioned, it's just bad timing in, in those terms. They're already talking about some concerns about the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia and what Congress can do 
issue on that front. There's some frustration that maybe the Biden administration's efforts with Saudi Arabia earlier this year were not quite as strong as they could have been. And we're seeing some legislation already introduced that would put some pressure on Saudi Arabia, that would remind them that if they want to have that friendly status with the United States, that it really has to go both ways. If we're going to be providing aid to them, then they have to be giving back to us and looking out for those gas prices. So even though Congress is out for the rest of this month campaigning for those midterm elections, I think you're definitely going to continue to see some action on this front because it's so important, because it's both an international and a domestic concern. Okay, it's time now for a quick break. And when we return, North Korea fired two ballistic missiles into the sea in its sixth round of missile tests in less than two weeks. Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voaafrica.com. While you're there, check out our other programs, Press Conference USA and Encounter. Also visit us on Facebook, then like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Now back to our panel via Skype, VOA White House Bureau Chief Patsy Whitakuzwara and VOA Congressional Correspondent Catherine Gibson. While officials in Seoul, South Korea said North Korea flew 12 warplanes near its border with the country, prompting the South to scramble 30 military planes in response. And this highly unusual incident came hours after North Korea fired two ballistic missiles into the sea. And these launches came after the U.S. redeployed an aircraft carrier near the Korean peninsula in response to North Korea's launch of a nuclear-capable missile over Japan. Patsy, what is all of this saying? Why is North Korea doing this? It's certainly provocation. It's certainly an increase in tension in the Korean peninsula. That missile that you were just mentioning, it has a range of 4,600 kilometers. This is further than any of the previous missiles that they have launched. And the big key difference here is that it was launched towards Japan instead of vertically, which is what they normally do if it's just to show off. But this is, I think, more than just showing off. It's really just saber rattling. Again, this is also a reaction, Pyongyang's reaction, to this trilateral military exercises last month between U.S., Japan, and South Korea. The Biden administration is surprisingly mellow in terms of handling it. They keep on saying that the goal remains the complete denuclearization of the Korean peninsula. They're open to uh, dialogue and diplomacy and remain prepared to meet with North Korea without preconditions. Now, one thing to understand in this dynamic is that there's really not much that the Biden administration can do. There's not much that they can do at the Security Council meeting, for example. They've asked for a meeting. They haven't been given one. China and Russia These are permanent members of the Security Council. They oppose more sanctions on North Korea. So there's really not much diplomatic leverage to press North Korean leader Kim Jong-un to de-escalate. And observers say that really North Korea is definitely trying to take advantage of the situation. The U.S. is focused on the war in Ukraine, and that really gives them some room and time to pursue its goals by flexing their weapons of mass destruction program. Observers also expect that Pyongyang will conduct another nuclear test soon, which will be its seventh, and then we'll see at that point what the U.S. and the uh, allies, Japan and South Korea, how they would react to that. 
Yes, I'm getting the same information that experts are saying that North Korea is determined to continue with its weapons test. It's a threatening situation, especially with what is going on with Russia and Ukraine. Yes, and don't forget that they have just recently passed a law that declares that they are ready to launch preventive nuclear strikes, including in the face of conventional attacks. So that's also another scary development that we need to keep an eye out on. Let's move on to our next topic. And the most significant trial yet to emerge from the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol, prosecutors contended that leaders of the far-right Oath Keepers sought to end the country's history of peaceful transitions of presidential power in order to keep Donald Trump in office. Catherine, how significant is this trial? Well, this has been a really fascinating trial on multiple fronts. One, because it's the first time that a group of January 6 rioters have been tried under something called seditious conspiracy, which is actually a Civil War era law, the 19th century here in the United States, that charged them with trying to overthrow the U.S. government. We're also seeing some of their texts in the time leading up to the January 6, 2021 riot at the U.S. Capitol. So we're really getting a little bit more insight into what exactly these rioters were planning, what their goals were. We're hearing them talk about loading up weapons in a Northern Virginia hotel in the Washington, D.C. area, being prepared, saying that if they didn't make these moves, that if President Biden was indeed allowed to become president, that this would be the end of this country as they knew it, and that they really felt a calling because they felt that this was similar to the American Revolution in the 18th century when they felt that the fate of the country was at stake. What their defense attorneys are arguing is that this is fully within their free speech, First Amendment rights to be able to be discussing these issues. And of course, the prosecutors bringing these charges against them are saying that they advocated for violence against members of the U.S. Congress, that this is a very cut and dried issue of trying to overthrow the U.S. government. So really be interesting to see how this plays out for the first time with charges of this very, very serious nature. And it also appears that former President Trump will be at the center of the trial, which is expected to last six to eight weeks. And also regarding former President Trump, a federal appeals court agreed to fast track an appeal by the Department of Justice over the appointment of a special master to review thousands of pages of government records seized this summer from former President Trump's Florida home. So, Catherine, really, where does this leave the Department of Justice? Basically, just to clarify for the international audience, this is a lot of very procedural back and forth among different levels of the U.S. court system. But basically where we are right now is that former President Trump has asked the nation's highest court to review this issue so that this is kind of the final say on the matter. That issue has gone before the Supreme Court, and now it's up to the Department of Justice to respond. They have until next week to respond to this. And then the court will make its decision, will weigh that case. But really, you know, the president has already had a couple of hits in terms of what can be reviewed and what can't be reviewed. And it'll be again in the court of public opinion as well, knowing that 
we've seen all of these revelations about what the former president did with those classified documents. And people are really weighing what is okay for a former president to do. What kind of material can he take back with him? So I think this is still, no matter what is happening, a hit for former President Trump and has deeply concerned many Republicans on Capitol Hill in private, even if they won't be saying anything in public. I also want to remind some of the listeners internationally that we, of course, still have the January 6th committee hearings going on here in the United States. We're due to have a final hearing last week, but it was postponed because of that hurricane. We're expecting it to be rescheduled any day now, even though Congress is out of session for midterm campaigns. That is expected to be the final January 6th committee hearing when the investigators, those lawmakers that serve on that committee, will be really wrapping up all of their findings, presenting them to the American public, and possibly making the case that the former president should face charges based on his efforts to encourage rioters to come into the U.S. Capitol. Just really quickly to add on what Catherine has recapped, you know, all these legal proceedings, all these investigations that's happening in Congress and elsewhere in relation to January 6th, in relation to President Trump, it's really playing out in the public opinion, and it's really impacting a couple of things. There's one trend that researchers have noted, a worrying trend, these posts on Twitter and other social media platforms that mention civil war has jumped 3,000% after the FBI searched President Trump's home in Florida. And it has jumped again every time there's something happening in terms of, you know, what they're doing to President Trump or any kind of development in that area. So this is really a worrying trend. It really shows the deep partisan divide within American society. No matter what happens, I think there's going to be this group of Americans who will continue to support President Trump no matter what and will continue to think that everything that's happening, whether it's January 6th or the FBI search or anything relating to President Trump, is a form of witch hunt against the former president as well as against them. Thank you both for a very nice summary of the latest developments on that issue. Well, it's time now to find out what is weighing on the minds of our panelists. Catherine, what has been weighing on your mind this week? One of the enjoyable things about being a reporter for Voice of America is that I get to go to different states all around the United States covering elections. And I'm starting to plan my trip to the southern state of Georgia, which is where I will be on election day this year. And it's actually an area I've traveled to multiple times in the past few years. So I've really gotten to get a sense of what voters there think about all of these big issues in the United States. And I really enjoy being able to go back to one place again and again. This is suburban Atlanta, one of the nation's largest cities, changing very rapidly in terms of demographics. You have a very diverse area, a lot of African-American voters. And it was really one of the key areas in the 2020 election that very narrowly gave Joe Biden the win for the presidency. So it'll be the first time I'm back there since January 2021 and looking forward to going back and seeing a very key governor race with Stacey Abrams, who was key in organizing voters in 2020. And of course, a very key Senate election between two African-American candidates, Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker, that really will be one of the deciding factors in seeing whether Democrats or Republicans control the U.S. Senate. So wondering how that whole area is doing and what they'll be doing in terms of a really important decision in this election. 
And Patsy. I have two things weighing on my mind right now. The first one is sad and the second one is pretty exciting. The first sad thing is, of course, this horrible news that we heard this week about a shooting at a child care center in Thailand where at least 36 people are dead, 24 of them are children. That's really, really sad news that we heard this week. But I'm also looking forward for next month, which is a month that three big summits are happening. The U.S. ASEAN Summit in Phnom Penh and then the G20 in Bali and then the APEX Summit in Bangkok. I plan to be traveling with President Biden to the first two summits, which will be exciting for me because that means I get to go home and see my friends and family in office time. Hopefully, I'll get a chance to see them in between coverage. After that, I believe Vice President Harris will be the one going to the APEC summit in Bangkok. And from what I'm hearing from diplomats is that they're very upset that President Joe Biden is not attending. And the reason why he's not attending is because his granddaughter, Naomi Biden, plans to have a wedding at the White House on November 19th, the same day of the summit. And this is upsetting a lot of diplomats because they believe that President Biden should be there, particularly because the U.S. is taking over as the chair of APEC next year. So those three summits, definitely something to look forward to for myself in terms of coverage and in terms of just being able to go home. You each have a very interesting assignments coming up, and I wish you well on both of them. We will close the show on those thoughts. My thanks to our panelists, VOA White House Bureau Chief Patsy Whitakuswara and VOA Congressional Correspondent Katherine Gibson. I'm Kim Lewis, and thanks for joining us for Issues in the News.